Well, if you will, open with me in your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. As we take a short break this morning from going through the Psalms and to focus specifically on one aspect of the Incarnation. We'll be looking at John chapter 1, verse 14, specifically this morning, but I'm going to begin by reading everything leading up to that point. So we'll read from John chapter 1, verse 1, down to verse 14, uh, but our focus again will be on verse 14 alone. So John here is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and we read beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through Him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, And his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's go again to the Lord in prayer. Father, the miracle of the incarnation is incomprehensible to our finite minds. We can only grasp but glimpses of the reality of this glorious mystery, how God became man, how the Son who is eternal and who is the one through whom all things came into existence humbled Himself to the point of being a lowly babe. But it is in this very mystery, it is in this glorious work that You have done, that You have worked a great work of salvation. 
It is through the coming of the Son into the world that you have begun a new work of building a glorious temple that will encompass the whole world and will be built together by the living stones of your people, with Christ being the cornerstone of all of it. And we who are in Christ are participants in this remaking of all things. We are those who are the beginnings of this new creation. And Lord, this is a grace that You have given to us that we do not deserve. And yet a grace that transforms everything about us. So Lord, I pray that as we seek to understand just an aspect of this incarnation, of the Word dwelling with man, I ask that You would not only help us to understand the full story of Scripture in this work, but that You would help us to recognize what this means for us and how we ought to live in response. I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible is a book which, of course, has a message that can be understood by the simplest and youngest mind, and which at the very same time can confound the wisest among men. A single verse can be read and grasped in an instant, and that same verse can be searched and studied for a thousand lifetimes. Its height, its depths, its widths and breadths evidence the work of a God who can condescend to speak to the smallest child and yet whose eternal nature is without bounds. And this mysterious reality of Holy Scripture is seen, I think, most clearly in this single verse that we've just read from John's Gospel. The basic point of the verse is unmistakable. It requires no great learning or wisdom to understand what John has just said. The context makes very clear to us that the Word here refers to the Son of God, to Jesus Christ. The Word is a title that John attributes to Christ, to the Son. And he makes it very clear in the opening verses of the chapter that this same Word, this Son of God, is the Creator Himself. You can distinguish the Son from the Father, no doubt, but the Son is as much God as the Father is God. John leaves us with no doubt about this when he says, at the end of chapter 1, verse 1, 
and the Word was God. He leaves us with no doubt that the Word, that Christ, is the Creator. When He says also, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Which includes the Son. Any category of made thing excludes the Son. Because He's the one through whom all things have come into existence. And so, we know who the Word is. The Word is the Son. The Word is the Creator. And John says of this Word in verse 14 that He became flesh. This also has a meaning that is unmistakably clear. The Creator, the Maker of all things, God Himself became a man. Like you and me. Flesh and blood, he entered into his own creation as a human being. And this, of course, refers to the glory of the incarnation, the virgin birth. The eternal Son of God humbled himself by becoming a man. And he didn't become a full grown man, he didn't become a, a giant of a man, a strong, fierce warrior of a man, he became an infant, a baby. He was formed by the work of the Spirit in the womb of Mary into a tiny infant who had to grow, just like you and I, and then be born. So the Word became flesh. And then we read, and He dwelt among us. The most basic meaning of this is also very clear. He lived a life as a man. He grew up like other men. He ate like other men. He slept like other men. When he was in a crowd, when he was walking along a path, when he was in a temple, when he was working with his own hands, he was among men, living his life like other men, with other men, and there was seemingly nothing different about him from any other man. Had you had looked at him when he was a 20-year-old man, when he had not yet begun his ministry, you would have not seen anything manifestly different about him from other men. He lives his life like others. So the Son of God became a man and lived the life of a man. 
in its simplest form, what is being said is understandable to every mind. A child could tell you that the Christmas miracle being described in these nine words is that God became a man in Jesus. But of course, this same verse also provides us with a wellspring to drink deeply from. We can use it to take little sips of refreshment, or we can supply water for the whole world from this single verse. In this verse, there is a whole complex of biblical themes and promises and types and shadows that is summoned. When John says here of the Word that He dwelt among us, he uses a word that is very closely related to the word tabernacle. In fact, he's essentially just using the verb form of that word so that it would not be an inaccurate thing to say. It would not be a wrong translation to phrase this very sentence as the word tabernacled among us. And John is being very intentional in his use of this word. It is not as if this is just a coincidence that he uses this word and we can run the risk of making too much about nothing. No, actually I would say that the opposite is the case. We will walk right on by the wellspring if we don't recognize all of the things that John is summoning by the use of this single word about Christ, that he tabernacled among us. And what John is drawing on here is all of the imagery all of the related themes of the tabernacle and the temple from the Old Testament. He is here intentionally evoking within the minds of the biblically literate the memory of God dwelling with His people in the tabernacle, in the wilderness, and dwelling with His people in the temple, at Jerusalem, at Mount Zion, He's drawing on this to help us to understand that a new kind of temple has now come in the person of the Son of God. Or to put it the way that Jesus puts it of Himself in Matthew's Gospel, something greater than the temple has come. What the temple pointed to has now arrived in the Son. And so to understand the significance of what John is saying here and what it means for us some 2,000 years later, we need to have a grasp 
on the story of the temple in Scripture and what God is doing through this work of temple building. And that's what I want us to look at this morning, what I want us to unpack a little bit more. Now, to understand this particular theme of Scripture, of the tabernacle and temple or the dwelling place or resting place of God, we have to go back to the very beginning of creation. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, when God creates the heavens and the earth and He fills it and He creates man as the crown of His creation and places the man and woman in the garden, it is certainly right and true and accurate to say that these chapters inform us about how all things in creation were made in the beginning. This is not, in other words, a mythological account of the beginning or origin of all things. This is not either, to use the new category that one evangelical has come up with, this is not mytho-history either. Genesis recounts the historical creation of the world out of nothing in seven actual days. But having said this and recognized the historicity of this account, we must also recognize that there is more that Moses wants us to understand about the creation by the way he writes the creation account. And one of the things that we are to understand is that in the creation of the world, God is building a temple. He's building a house to dwell in with men. The creation of the heavens and the earth with the Garden of Eden and with man as image bearers is the creation of a global and sacred place of worship, which we call a temple. And the fact that the creation is made as a living, organic, sacred temple is evidenced most clearly by the parallels that we can see between Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, and later passages of Scripture, which include the later building of the tabernacle and temple in Israel. Now, we don't have time this morning to get into all of the evidence and parallels, but allow me just to point to several of these to illustrate what I'm talking about. First of all, in Psalm 78, verse 69, we read in that verse an explicit, explicit statement that the temple was built as a kind of microcosm, as a, as a miniature replica, if you will, of the heavens and the earth. The psalm says of the Lord, He built 
His sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which He has founded forever. The temple, in other words, was built as a replica of the heavens and the earth. Which means, conversely, that the heavens and the earth are understood as a kind of temple. Second, Solomon's temple was built with many features, but one of them was two pillars at the entrance of the holy place. And on these two pillars were written the words, one being on one pillar, Yachin, meaning may he establish. And on the other pillar was written Boaz, which means in strength. And thus you have may he establish in strength. And this was to remind those who saw it as they were entering in. It was to remind those of God's creative works and how He established the world in strength. In Psalm 93, verse 1, for example, a psalm which praises God for His sovereignty over creation, the the psalmist draws on this very language when he says the Lord has put on strength as His belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. It was established, in other words, in strength. In the strength of the Lord. Yachin and Boaz on the pillars. Third, the Garden of Eden was the place that was uniquely characterized as the place of God's presence. As we read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, that there God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And in the same way, the tabernacle was the place among the people of Israel where God's presence dwelt uniquely. And in the form of this tabernacle, he says he would dwell in their midst. We read the Lord say in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 12, for example, after saying that he will place his tabernacle among them, he adds, and I will also walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. Reminding them of how God dwelt and walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. Fourth, when God places Adam in the garden, He gives him the responsibility of working or serving it and guarding or keeping it. You can read about this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. And this same language of Working and guarding is only used elsewhere in Scripture to describe the role of the Levitical priest in the tabernacle. In Numbers chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, they are responsible for keeping or guarding and serving or ministering 
at the tabernacle. Again, the same exact language that is used of Adam in the garden. And so Adam is to be understood as a kind of priest in the garden of Eden. Fifth, the cherubim were stationed at the east of Eden when the man and the woman were cast out guarding the way to the tree of life. And similarly, the entrance to the tabernacle or the temple faced the east. And we might point out as well that the Ark of the Covenant was surrounded, guarded by two cherubim in the temple. Sixth, temples in the ancient Near East were of course built on mountains. Solomon's temple was built on Mount Moriah, for example. And similarly, the Garden of Eden was located on a mountain. Genesis chapter 2, verse 10 tells us that a river flowed out of Eden and divided into four rivers, which means that it flowed downhill from an elevated place. And Ezekiel 28, verse 14, specifically calls Eden the holy mountain of God. Now, many more parallels could be made, of course, but the point is that the world is created as a temple of God, and we might say that the Garden of Eden was the most holy place. And what man was commanded to do as he worked and he kept the ground and as he fulfilled the command to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it was essentially to expand the borders of Eden. To expand the territory of the most holy place to cover the whole world. In the same way that God created the world as formless and void, and then He carried out a process of shaping it and making it habitable and filling it, so also was man given a command to effectively replicate or image that work throughout the whole world. He was to take the template of Eden and in the presence of God, while walking with God, He was to cultivate that Edenic dominion throughout the world. He was to use His hands and His feet and His mind, His body, His very own family to make God's sanctuary bigger and to effectively make all of creation the most holy place where God would dwell with all men. Of course, we know how the story went. It didn't end with paradise covering all of creation. The holy place was very quickly stained with sin. The clean 
became unclean. The very first royal priest, Adam, rejected the command of God, listened to the voice of Satan, invited death into the world through his sin, and thereby turned the holy temple of creation into a place of idolatry and perversion. And man was subsequently banished from God's presence. And from that moment on, heaven and earth became radically divided. The first temple, which was the world, now became a place that suffered under the groans of a curse due to the entrance of sin within it. And if this had been the end of the story, of course, we would all be utterly hopeless. We would all be bound to face the same end as Satan and all rebellious powers, bound to be cast away into an eternal lake of fire and judgment. But of course, as the story continues, we know that God was not finished with man. Nor was he finished with having a dwelling place with man. He made promises concerning the future redemption of the world. And as the story of Scripture and history unfolds, we eventually come to the creation of Israel. And again, we find God building a temple, building a tabernacle, and a resting place. In the Exodus, God enters into covenant with Israel and He instructs them to build a tabernacle constructed to be like heaven and earth, as we've already seen. And they were called uniquely to be a people like Adam. They were called to be a nation of royal priests. Their land was to be a new kind of garden. A land flowing with milk and honey and a land that knew only the blessings of God. A land with God in its midst as God said that He would walk with His people uniquely in the tabernacle. And God told them that if they obeyed His commands, if they succeeded where Adam failed, their land would be blessed they would be fruitful and multiply. All of their enemies would be subdued before them. And heaven and earth, essentially, would meet together in this glorious place. In this unique land among lands in the world. But of course, like Adam, Israel failed. They had Adam's nature. They had Adam's heart. They were stiff-necked. They were hardened of heart. They did not have hearts to believe in the Lord. And no matter how glorious a promise was made to them, they wanted and loved sin more than God. They craved their idolatry 
and all of the evil that springs from it more than the garden of God. And so the same end came upon them. They were cursed. They were banished from the land. They were sent to the east in exile to dwell apart from God's presence in the temple. But of course, even in the midst of exile, and even prior to the exile, God continued through His prophets to make promises. Promises about the future. Promises about restoration. Promises about dwelling with His people. He foretold by the prophet Isaiah of a day of restoration that would come where the glory that Israel once had would be far surpassed by her latter glory. God's presence would not just be located in a single room, in a single part of a temple, but it would expand to encompass and cover the whole of Jerusalem and Zion and all of its people. The citizens of Jerusalem would be cleansed of their sin, as Isaiah 4 says. And the Lord would create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over all her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. In other words, His glory witnessed in the wilderness years covers all of God's people covers the whole of Jerusalem. The peoples and the nations as well would join themselves to her, being made themselves priests to the living God, signifying by that promise alone that a fundamental change would take place in the future concerning the nature of the priesthood. For it was not the case that Gentiles could ever serve as priests to God. And yet in the prophets, those promises are being made. The nations will be made like Levites. All her enemies, all Jerusalem's enemies would also be judged and destroyed. The curse of the ground would be lifted, bringing about a harmony once again between man and beast and man and the ground. Death would be utterly destroyed and the serpent himself would be slain. The population of Jerusalem would be increased so greatly that her borders would have to be enlarged. And we find at the end of the book of Isaiah that that expansion of borders would encompass the whole of creation. Indeed, the whole of the new creation the new heavens and the new earth, such that what we find throughout Isaiah are promises relating to the original intent of creation. Now reaching their climactic fulfillment. 
Jerusalem, which will be the place where the presence of God dwells, will expand to cover the whole of the new heavens and the new earth. And again, that original intent to have the whole world subdued and be a dwelling place for God will be fulfilled. The temple building project of God through the promises of Isaiah and the prophets will go on. And He will make the temple of heaven the temple of heaven and earth. Once again, that radical division between the two will be broken down and God's heavenly presence will be on earth forever. That is the basic theme, storyline, promises that are worked out through the prophets. And therefore, when we come to the words that are written by John in John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, we are to recognize that God's building project, His renovation work of the world has begun in full. The first stone of the new Zion and the new temple has been laid. And the stone that is first laid is not a literal chiseled stone, but it is the very body of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll remember in John chapter 2 when Jesus there was cleansing the old temple in Jerusalem, He said to the Jews, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. But of course, in that moment, Jesus was not speaking plainly to the people as He rarely did as a sign of judgment against them. He was speaking rather about spiritual things, about heavenly things. And John explains to us in John chapter 2, verse 21, that when he said these words, he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus came into the world to begin the work of building a holy temple for the Lord, which would be made not of rocky stones, but rather of living stones of His people, and which would cover the whole earth at its completion. And the Apostle Paul, of course, recognizes and draws on this very same idea when he describes the church as the temple of the living God in Ephesians 2. He says of the church, describing it as being made up of both Jews and Gentiles in verses 20 to 22 of that chapter. He says that you, the church, are built on the foundation 
Notice that building imagery. You are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. A new temple, in other words, is being built. A living temple for the living God. And the cornerstone of this temple, the one around whom and on whom and in whom the whole thing is being built is Christ Jesus, the Son, the Word. He is its beginning. He is He who fills the whole thing. And He is its end. And the temple is being built and is growing and is increasing as it has been for the last 2,000 years every single time a new saint who was formerly bound and trapped within the gates of Hades is snatched away from the grips of death by the Gospel of Christ and is added to the people of God in His church. He is made a citizen of Zion. He is added, to use the language of Hebrews, to the heavenly Jerusalem. He is joined to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and His soul is made into a permanent fixture into God's heavenly temple and He is made a king and priest before Him. But a day is coming, friends, when that heavenly Jerusalem and the heavenly temple will be heavenly no more. We won't refer to it as the heavenly Jerusalem or a heavenly Zion. The whole purpose of this heavenly building project is to bring ultimately what is unshakable in heaven to the shakable earth. It is to join heaven and earth together once again. When Christ has finished His work and when every stone has been laid, when every priest has been appointed and when every elect soul has been snatched out of the gates of Hades, then He will come from heaven with a loud cry of command. And all causes of sin and evil, everything unclean on the earth will be purged and cast into fire. Death will be killed. The curse will be lifted. Heaven and earth will be joined together. And all of creation will be the temple of our God. 
And then at that point, what John heard at the end of his apocalyptic vision will be fulfilled. Behold, the dwelling place, the tabernacle of God is with man. He will tabernacle with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. What happened 2,000 years ago, friends, when Christ was on earth with man is but a foretaste of the great things that are to come. When God will dwell among all men in every place on earth. When we will be His completed temple and will be filled with the fullness of His glory. The miracles that were performed by His very Word overturning all aspects of the curse. The lame being able to walk. The blind being able to literally see. The deaf being able to hear. The dead like Lazarus being raised from the dead. All of these Miracles that were performed in one tiny area of the world will be the character of all creation. Where there will be no more blind, no more deaf, no more lame, no more death. For every single enemy and every aspect of the curse that has touched a single part of the world will be vanquished, cleansed, and done away with forever. The child who was born was and is the chief cornerstone of the universal temple of God. And this, of course, has many Many profound implications for us now. But I'll just close with these two. One implication that we should draw from this. One is that if you are in Christ and you've been joined to Him by faith, you have to understand who you are and live accordingly. You are now, friends, a priest. That's what you've been made to be. More so a priest than the Levites ever were. More so a priest than even the high priest Aaron ever was. Your access to God is greater than the access even Aaron had when he entered into the most holy place in the tabernacle. For he was only able to do that one time a year. And you and I, if we are in Christ, have access to God 
every second of every hour by the indwelling of his spirit. The curtain that separated people from the presence of God was torn in two. And now the access in and through the curtain we have has been opened up through the body of Christ. So we have been made priests of priests. Priests that surpass the priests of the Old Covenant. That is who you are. You are a living stone in the holy temple of God. You are the sacred dwelling place of God. Therefore, you cannot allow any unclean things to enter. That's part of your job. That's your description. You can, you can place yourself back into the old covenant and imagine yourself as a Levite being instructed to guard and to minister in the tabernacle. And if any unclean or unauthorized person dares to come in, you draw the sword. You're on guard duty. And that's the same call that every believer has now. You are not only a priest, but you are indeed one of the very stones in the temple. And you have to guard it from any and all sin and unclean things. You cannot indulge in sin. You cannot tolerate it or play with it or allow it to enter in about five feet into the tabernacle and no more. You cannot love it. You cannot embrace it. You cannot look upon it with any mercy at all. It defiles the temple of God. And so you must keep and guard it. And as shameful as it was for the Levitical priests to bring idolatry into God's old covenant temple, how much greater the shame to defile the temple that has been sanctified by the blood of Christ. The stakes have been amplified for us, friends. It's not as if the, the old covenant believers had a serious responsibility and the load has been lightened for us. The stakes have been lowered. No doubt it is the case that as Christ says, when we come to Him, His yoke is light. And we receive rest from Him. But if you trample upon that grace that has been extended to you, how much worse the judgment. Our role as priest in the temple is a grave matter. And thus ensuring that it is not defiled by sin must be taken seriously. You must understand that you have a role and a job as a holy 
priest. And so your whole life needs to reflect that holiness. You are the kind of person who takes the Word of God and not only believes it, but puts it into practice. The commands for you are not optional. If you've come to Christ, you've now come to recognize how good and life-giving those commands are. And you've been freed from the gates of Hades. You've been freed from the bondage of sin and are now able by the Spirit to walk in accordance with His commands. This is who you are in Christ. You've been given a great privilege. You have been raised to a holy status. You have been made a priest and must therefore conduct your life accordingly. The other point is for those of you who do not know Christ and who are on the outside of the temple. You are, in a very real sense, you are enslaved by the power of death. It has gates, it has walls, and you cannot break them down. You cannot overcome the power of sin and death by your own strength. Try all you want, but all your efforts will be feeble attempts that are nothing more than vanity. Try and reform your life apart from Christ. And in the world's eyes, you may make some moral improvements, but friends, it is God who sees the heart and the defilement that you have by being a citizen of the kingdom of darkness will not go away. You cannot cleanse yourself. You cannot change your stains. You need a Savior. You need a king to storm the gates of Hades and snatch you out of its grips. That's what you need. When we talk about Christ being the Savior, that word has meaning. You're desperate. You can't do anything of your own power and strength. The only thing you have to do is to cry out and to, to hope and pray that those cries go over the walls of the gates of Hades and catches the ear of the king. For when he hears that cry, he will come in his power and snatch you from its grips. And so what you must do is that and that alone. Call out to the Lord. Lift up your prayers of desperation to the Lord. 
Lord, I am a sinner. I'm bound by the chains of sin. I'm kept by the powers of darkness. I've been kept as a citizen of the kingdom of Satan. Rescue me. But I cannot rescue myself. The promise that He gives to us in His Word is that the omniscient, the all-knowing, the all-wise, the all-hearing King of Kings will hear that cry and will come to your rescue, will snatch you out of the gates of Hades, and will make you a priest and king in the kingdom of heaven. That is your call. That's the command that's been given to you to cry out to the Lord and he will save you and give you the glorious promise of being part of that renewed temple that will cover the whole earth and you will dwell with God and God will dwell with you and you will be his people and he will be your God. Amen. Let's go to the Lord and close with prayer. Father, your works are wonderful and your grace is great. Long ago, you could have cast man away from your presence forever and been righteous in your judgments to destroy every single one of them as you did in the days of Noah, save one family. But in your grace, in your wisdom, in your plans to have an earth that was united together with heaven, have a temple in which you would be worshipped that covered the whole world. You made promises to bring restoration to the world and to redeem sinful men. And you gave us the greatest sign of that promise being fulfilled when you sent your Son into the world. And the Word became flesh. And so we are grateful for your grace and for the works that you have been working in the world for millennia. And we long for the day, Lord, when we will be able to see you face to face and when all curses will be lifted from the ground and we will have life eternal together with you forever and ever. You bring this day soon to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.